Good evening. Tonight in the Arts Show, we commemorate the 50th anniversary of the death of the poet William Butler Yeats, who died on the 28th of January 1939. A celebration in poetry, music and reminiscences by his contemporaries. Irish poets, learn your trade, sing whatever is well made. Had I the heavens embroidered cloths enwrought with golden and silver light, the blue and the dim and the dark cloths of night and light and the half light, I would spread the cloths under your feet. But I, being poor, have only my dreams. I have spread my dreams under your feet. Tread soft. Because you tread on my dreams. He was the sort of man who always gave you the impression that he expected you to kiss his ring. Now, I'm not saying that Gates couldn't be silly, because that was Maud Gunn's complaint about. Willie is so silly. Percy French had Victoria on her visit to Ireland retort in words that a head waiter committed to memory. There must be a slate, says she. Off Willie Yates, says she. Denouncing me crimes, says she, in the Irish Times, says she. The writers of real significance to us are those without whom we cannot even imagine life as we have known it. Cadences of theirs are woven into the very texture of our being. I find it impossible to envisage a world without Innisfree, without Though You Are In Your Shining Days, without Outworn Heart In A Time Outworn, Prayer For My Daughter, What Then Said Plato's Ghost, What Then, without The Wild Wicked Old Man. great dream must always have been to be one of the boys. He used to hear us talk about going into public houses, but he'd never been in a public house. One night he asked Higgins to bring him to one, and Higgins, scared of Yeats's lofty standards of behaviour, brought him to the Red Bank restaurant, which is one of the most respectable uh, pubs in Dublin. After a glass of sherry, Yeats said wearily, Very well, Higgins, I have seen a public house. <clears throat> now take me home.
He also knew the effect he produced, aloof, severe, romantic, on women. I remember how he pulled down the waistcoat of the beautiful fawn suit, which is the one I always see him in, smoothing it over a belly that was becoming portly, and remarking that the lady set great store on his appearance. For me, there were always the two Yeatses, the poet and the public men, who talked in an ecclesiastical voice on large public issues and who attached exaggerated importance to his friends and their work, and the plain girl at the party who observes everybody and everything while spilling her drink over somebody's frock. I rise in the dawn and I kneel and blow to the seed of the fire flicker and glow and then I must scrub and bake and sweep till stars are beginning to blink and peep but the young lie long and dream in their bed of the matching of ribbons for bosom and head their day goes over in idleness. They sigh if the wind but lift up a tress. While I must work because I am old and the seed of the fire gets feeble and cold. It was not his opinions alone that made him a marked man in the Dublin of the early 1900s. Porrick Column. The tall, lank figure in black clothes, with the blue-black hair coming over his forehead, his frequent gestures and deliberate utterances challenged and discomfited people. Pose was the word that was often used about him. With reference to this word, pose, I should like to say a word. Yeats was a man who believed in style, or manner if you like to call it that, Art is art because it is not nature, said Goethe, and Yeats often repeated that saying. This insistence on art, style, manner, infuriated Dubliners, all except the sophisticated and certain members of the rising generation. People whose literary tradition went back to Thomas Moore and the poets of the nation felt affronted by his dismissal of the minstrel boy kind of verse, and by his downgrading Thomas Davis to the category of oratory rather than poetry. I, however, was converted to Yeats's poetry at an early age by the gift of Innisfree as a wall card from one of his sisters. Monk Gibbon. Elizabeth had printed it, but it was Lily who gave it to me, and it was Lily who used to take me to the Abbey sometimes on Saturday afternoons, when I longed to see the poet himself, but was always unlucky. When I did see him, I was aged twelve or thereabouts. It was one morning in a street in Dublin, when, shopping with my father, and the man in the broad-brimmed hat and with the black ribbon dangling from his pince-nez, seemed to me both a little too fat and a little too deliberately absent-minded. That was your cousin, William Butler Yeats, said my father, 
after we had safely passed him. I was a little disappointed. I had no objection to a man looking the part of the poet, but I had an uneasy feeling that Yeats felt that it was his business to look the part. That was a different matter altogether. Jester walked in the garden. The garden had fallen still. He bade his soul rise upward and stand on her windowsill. It rose in a straight blue garment when owls began to call. It had grown wise-tongued by thinking of a quiet and light footfall. But the young queen would not listen. She rose in her pale nightgown. She drew in the heavy casement and pushed the latches down. He bade his heart go to her when the owls called out no more. In a red and quivering garment, it sang to her through the door. It had grown sweet-tongued by dreaming of a flutter of flower-like hair. But she took up her fan from the table and waved it off on the air. I have cap and bells, he pondered. I will send them to her and die. And when the morning whitened, he left them where she went by. She laid them upon her bosom under a cloud of her hair, and her red lips sang them a love song till stars grew out of the air. She opened her door and her window, and the heart and the soul came through. To her right hand came the red one, to her left hand came the blue. They set up a noise like crickets, a chattering wise and sweet, and her hair was a folded flower, and the quiet of love in her feet. During the next few years, my life was coloured by Yeats' poems. Francis Stewart. He himself seemed almost as remote and legendary as those other stirrers of my youthful imagination, Shelley, Wordsworth and Blake. So when, at 18, I married Maud Gon's daughter, Isolt, and found myself in the circle of his friends, it appeared to me as an extraordinary turn of events. Even when Esau told me how, a few years later, he had proposed to her, it was quite impossible for her to treat the episode seriously, and she related it in a tone of banter. She never got over these early impressions. To her, and I think even to Mordgon herself, Uncle Willie, as my wife called him, was an enigma with his deliberate ways, his carefulness about his clothes and about money, on the one hand, and his passionate romantic poems on the other. 
Why should I blame her that she filled my days with misery? Or that she would of late have taught to ignorant men most violent ways? Or hurl the little streets upon the great? Had they but courage equal to desire? What could have made her peaceful with a mind that nobleness made simple as a fire? With beauty like a titan bow? A kind that is not natural in an age like this? being high and solitary and most stern. Why, what could she have done, being what she is? Was there another Troy for her to burn? I saw a performance of The Countess Kathleen only once. Austin Clark. The very first lines have a simplicity and imaginative quality that is new. What can have made the grey hen flutter so? They say that now the land is famine-struck, the graves are walking. What can the hen have heard? And that is not the worst. At Tober a woman met a man with ears spread out 
and they moved up and down like a bat's wings. What can have kept your father all this while? Two nights ago at Carrigora's churchyard, a herdsman met a man who had no mouth, nor eyes, nor ears, his face a wall of flesh. He saw him plainly by the light of the moon. Look out and tell me if your father's coming. The words spoken by Alil and the Countess Kathleen are both lyrical and dramatic. He bids me go, where none of mortal creatures but the swan dabbles. And there you would pluck the harp, when the trees had made a heavy shadow about our door, and talk among the rustling of the reeds, when night hunted the foolish sun away with stillness and pale tapers. No, no, I cannot. Although I weep, I do not weep because that life would be most happy. And here I find no way, no end. Nor do I weep because I had longed to look upon your face. But that a night of prayer hath made me weary. I like best the sparse language of The King's Threshold, a play which, despite the critics, I have always thought dramatically effective on the stage. Yes, yes, go to the hurley, go to the hurley, go to the hurley, gather up your skirts, run quickly. You can remember many love songs. I know it by the light that's in your eyes, but you'll forget them. You're fair to look upon... Your feet delight in dancing and your mouths in the slow smiling that awakens love. The mothers that have borne you mated rightly. Their little ears as thirsty as your ears for many love songs. Go to the young men. Are not the ruddy flesh and the thin flanks and the broad shoulders worthy of desire? Go from me. Here is nothing for your eyes. But it is I that am singing you away, singing you to the young men. I went down to the Hazelwood Because a fire was in my head I caught and peeled Wand, and who to bury to a thread And when wet moths were on the wing And moth-like stars were flickering out I dropped the bell I went to blow the fire aflame But something rustled on the floor And someone called me by my name It had become a glimmering girl With apple blossom in her hair Who called me by my name and ran 
and faded through the brightening air. Though I am old with wandering through hollow lands and hilly lands, I will find out where she has gone and kiss her lips and take her hands and walk among long dappled grass and pluck till time and times are done the silver apples of the moon, the golden apples of the sun. Though he professed to dislike personal involvement in controversy, Ernest Blythe, Yeats had no hesitation about coming out in opposition to the popular views or to what he conceived to be the attitude of the mob. His stand for the freedom of the theatre from mob censorship was wholehearted and uncompromising. I was in the Abbey on the night of the first production of the Playboy. It was the first occasion on which I saw a queue outside the pit door awaiting its opening, and it was the last time such a queue was seen for several years. Whatever kudos the Playboy may have gained for the Abbey abroad, its effect at home was to drive away a great part of the following which had gradually been built up. That, however, was a small loss compared to what would have been suffered if a puritanical mob censorship had been made effective. Although Yeats had been associated to some extent with advanced nationalism and been a friend and admirer of John O'Leary, the political leader, he did not hesitate to bring the police into the theatre and point out to them the disturbers whom they should arrest. After a week or so of arrests and fines, the playboy row was over, and there was no further attempt at communal censorship for a long time. What need you, being come to sense, but fumble in a greasy till, and add the halfpence to the pence, and prayer to shivering prayer, until you have dried the marrow from the bone? For men were born to pray and save. Romantic islands dead and gone, it's with O'Leary in the grave. Yet they were of a different kind, the names that still your childish play. They have gone about the world like wind, but little time had they to pray for whom the hangman's rope was spun, and what, God help us, could they save? Romantic islands dead and gone, it's with O'Leary in the grave. Was it for this the wild geese spread the grey wing upon every tide? For this, that all that blood was shed? For this, Edward Fitzgerald died, and Robert Emmett, and Wolfe Tone, all that delirium of the brave? Romantic islands dead and gone, it's with O'Leary in the grave. Yet could we turn the years again, and call those exiles as they were in all their loneliness and pain, you'd cry, some woman's yellow hair has maddened every mother's son. They weighed so lightly what they gave. But let them be, they're dead and gone. They're with O'Leary in the grave. When I play on my fiddle and only, folk dance like a wave of the sea. My cousin is priest in Kilvernus, my brother in Machrabwee. I passed my brother and cousin, they read in their books of prayer. I read in my book of songs I bought at the Sligo Fair. When we come at the end of time to Peter sitting in state, he will smile on the three old spirits 
but call me first to the gate. For the good are always the merry, save by an evil chance. And the merry love the fiddle, and the merry love to dance. And when the folk there spy me, they will all come up to me with, Here is the fiddler of Dooney, and dance like a wave of the sea. I whispered, I am too young, and then, I am old enough. Wherefore I threw a penny to find out if I might love. Go and love, go and love, young man, if the lady be young and fair. Ah, penny, brown penny, brown penny, I am looped in the loops of her hair. Oh, love is the crooked thing. There is nobody wise enough to find out all that is in it. For he would be thinking of love till the stars had run away and the shadows eaten the moon. Ah, penny, brown penny, brown penny, one cannot begin it too soon. Naturally, I was interested in the methods of work of a poet. In the morning, he stayed in the large drawing room, sitting before a table or pacing about, murmuring lines of verse that he had set down or was about to set down. Like many imaginative writers, he had to tease himself into getting on with the job. At one time, he used to make a cigarette, he used to smoke a cigarette between lines, and that gave him too much time off. Now he cuts cigarettes into halves. The smoking of a half cigarette was the interval he now allowed himself. In the drawing room where we met after dinner, Lady Gregory, W.B., Robert Gregory and myself, the conversation was natural and interesting. Yeats no longer made oracular, oracular pronouncements but spoke on all kinds of topics, gossiping with some humour on the coteries in London, repeating sayings of painters and writers. The son of a really great conversationalist, John Butler Yeats, he himself was a remarkable conversationalist. In the room across from us, the music room, Lady Gregory's nieces sometimes played. I discovered that Yeats who was so varied in the music of his verse, was absolutely tone-deaf. I'd heard him say that he liked a harp because it looked well-shaped. 
Now, as we heard the music from outside the drawing room, he said to me, what are they playing? Fiddle or piano? It was to Higgins, unfortunately, that Yeats confided his innocent pride in being, unknown to everybody, a musician. And for years, the one fathead wrote what he thought were songs, and the other fathead fitted them to what he thought were Irish airs, and then they got in a professional musician to take down their nonsense in staff notation. Nothing could ever persuade Yeats but that he had a fine ear a natural ear, <clears throat> as he called it. And natural it must have been, because it certainly wasn't acquired. The first time I told him uh, about uh, hearing Italian folk music, he asked me, I wonder if it was anything like my singing. And, of course, Higgins got wonderful yarns out of this little weakness of his. One of his best was Yeats's description of how he'd seen George Sigerson put an old countrywoman into a hypnotic trance. He asked her to stroke my face, Higgins, <clears throat> and say what I was. And first she said, poet. And then she said, great poet. And finally she said, musician. And then I knew she was genuine. <laughs>
The poet had only two topographical influences in his life, Sligo and Dublin. They were a part of his being. Sligo in childhood, Dublin as an art student with A.E., and afterwards in the early days of the Abbey, and in old age. Nothing of London where he lived for a number of years, nothing of Oxford, nothing certainly of Dundrum, passed into him and became a part of him, as places become a part of ordinary individuals. The trees are in their autumn beauty, the woodland paths are dry, under the October twilight the water mirrors a still sky. Upon the brimming water among the stones are nine and fifty swans. I have looked upon those brilliant creatures and now my heart is sore. All's changed since I, hearing at twilight, the first time on this shore, the bell beat of their wings above my head, trod with a lighter tread. Unwearied still, lover by lover, they paddle in the cold, companionable streams, or climb the air. Their hearts have not grown old. Passion or conquest, wander where they will, attend upon them still. But now they drift on the still water, mysterious, beautiful. Among what rushes will they build? By what lake's edge or pool delight men's eyes when I wake some day to find they have flown away? He never allowed anything to deter him from doing what he thought necessary for the good of the theatre or to rush him into precipitate action. The big split between Sean O'Casey and the Abbey Board, 
which followed the rejection of the silver tassie, was still unhealed when Yeats heard that O'Casey was ill in hospital. He went to see him as if no hard words had ever passed between them. He came away having promised that the Abbey would now perform the silver tassie and having got permission to do it as well as within the gates. Again, when Yeats made up his mind that Lennox Robinson's lengthy period of distinguished service as producer in the Abbey should end and a new man be appointed, he did not allow years of friendship and comradely cooperation to deflect him from his purpose. Put off that mask of burning gold with emerald eyes. Oh no, my dear, you make so bold to find if hearts be wild and wise and yet not cold. I would but find what's there to find. Love or deceit? Was the mask engaged your mind and after set your heart to beat, not what's behind? But lest you are my enemy, I must inquire. Oh, no, my dear, let all that be. What matter? So there is but fire in you, in me. Although I can see him still, the freckled man who goes to a grey place on a hill in grey Connemara clothes at dawn to cast his flies, it's long since I began to call up to the eyes this wise and simple man. All day I'd looked in the face what I had hoped would be to write for my own race and the reality, the living men that I hate, the dead man that I loved, the craven man in his seat, the insolent unreproved, and no knave brought to book who has won a drunken cheer, the witty man in his joke aimed at the commonest ear, the clever man who cries the catch-cries of the clown, the beating down of the wise, and great art beaten down. Maybe a twelve-month since suddenly I began, in scorn of this audience, imagining a man and his sun-freckled face and grey Connemara cloth Climbing up to a place where stone is dark under froth and the downturn of his wrist when the flies drop in the stream. A man who does not exist. A man who is but a dream. And cried, Before I am old, I shall have written him one poem, maybe as cold and passionate as the dawn. He has unveiled his mind, but not his personality, to us in his writings. Did anyone know him really well, except possibly the members of his own household? I doubt if A.E. did, perhaps Scobody did, perhaps Strong did. But he has left us a timeless memorial of himself in his poetry, and before that I uncover.
You know, I hate that damned epitaph in Drumcliff Churchyard. And every time I revisit his grave, I hate it more. Cast a cold eye on life and death is the one thing that Yeats never did. He consulted me about his burial place, but not about that epitaph. And the night he died, I walked for hours on the old walls in Chester, saying over and over to myself the epitaph I had chosen for him on my own account. You'll find it in a play called The Heron's Egg. <clears throat> Firm sinew and soft flesh are foliage round a shaft before the arrowsmith has stripped it, and I pray that I, all foliage gone, may shoot into my joy. That was Yeats. He with body waged a fight, but body won, it walks upright. Then he struggled with the heart. Innocence and peace depart. Then he struggled with the mind. His proud heart he left behind. Now his wars on God begin. At stroke of midnight, God shall win. Thank you.